This was recorded at our second annual Enlightenment Day celebration. It's titled, My Enlightenment. Recorded August 16th, 1992, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Today we're celebrating Enlightenment Day, and we celebrate Enlightenment Day once a year, and it's the celebration of uh, a universal enlightenment. Last year I gave a talk called There is Only One Enlightenment, which is very true. We picked the day to be close to August 13th, which was the day of my gnosis. And I say that in a relative sense, and I'm going to explain that a little bit more. Uh, but really, we're not celebrating my enlightenment, because the uh, essential uh, insight of enlightenment is there is no my. So it's a contradiction and a paradox to talk about my enlightenment. However, uh, in the realm of form and in the uh, uh, appearance of teachers, uh, we can, in a certain sense, in a relative sense, talk about a different people's enlightenment. And it does make sense in a relative way to do that, uh, precisely because they are exemplars for us. They are exemplars in the very fact of uh, having uh, realized something that we normally don't realize. And then if they go on to become teachers, uh, they provide invaluable guidance on a spiritual path. So it's important to recognize both aspects of this, the absolute aspect, if you like, that enlightenment is not a uh, someone's uh, individual personal achievement. And also, however, that it is something possible uh, and potential for each and every human being uh, born into this world. It's not the exclusive province of great yogis and sages and so forth. It doesn't depend on some uh, uh, external or extraneous circumstance. The seed, the potential, is in every single human being. And at all times, no matter how corrupt or evil or uh, foolish they are at any given time in their life. There's no ultimate bar. So from that point of view, in a certain sense, a spiritual path and enlightenment and ultimately your own happiness is your own responsibility. No one can do it for you. No one can come along and wave a magic wand or touch you on the head or whatnot. There are certain times on a spiritual path uh, when you become ripe and a teacher may do something that is, acts as a catalyst. As, for instance, in the Zen tradition, when a Zen master will simply blow out a candle that the student is holding and the student's mind is opened. But the master didn't enlighten the student. It was just at that, that moment there was some little exchange that was just the trigger. Doesn't necessarily have to be a living person that's the, uh, the trigger. There's one uh, famous Zen story about a woman who had been a uh, disciple for a long time, and she was walking down a, a path, 
and she was carrying over her shoulder a bamboo pole with two buckets of water, as they do in Japan. And, and it was at night, and the moon was reflected in one of these, the bucket in front of her, and she could see the moon reflected in the water. And as she's walking down the path, she tripped, and the water spilled, and her mind was open. So the responsibility of a spiritual path is your own. Nobody can order you to go on a spiritual path. There is no ultimate reason, cosmic or moral or whatever, that you should go on a spiritual path. The presumption of a spiritual path, of a mystical path anyway, is that you want to be on that path. All the disciplines of a path are voluntary. A discipline that a teacher imposes is nevertheless voluntarily accepted. And there's always the implicit understanding that you're free just to chuck it and say, screw this. You might find yourself in a conflict with yourself about a discipline. You may take one on and then decide, oh, this is terrible. Or very often, uh, especially if your teacher gives you a discipline, you may turn around and say this, uh, why should I do this? Just because my teacher tells me to do this. But this is false. You're doing it because you want to do it. That's the presumption. And the inner struggle is very interesting and part of a spiritual path. So when we think of enlightenment, it's a little bit like modern physics. In fact, all spiritual teachings are like that in the sense that uh, no single concept or conceptual system can grasp it. So as in quantum mechanics, we have to use complementary and contradictory terms. So just as in quantum mechanics, um, simplistically speaking anyway, matter is both a wave and a particle depending on how we look at it. Enlightenment is both completely impersonal and cosmic and also very personal and intimate. It's not one or the other, and your mind will never be able to decide or settle that question. So this morning, I want to talk about it from this more personal point of view, the intimate point of view. Did you want to ask a question? And the only real way I can do that is to talk about my experience. And those of you who know me know I don't often talk about my experience. Partly because there's no me here to experience anything. Rather, I should say, I can tell you what my experience was, or the experience of that person that I thought I was. And see if you relate to it. And you might learn something. Maybe it has no relation to you. My earliest memories in all of life were always imbued with this seeking happiness. 
Now, I didn't think as a child seeking happiness, but I do remember, oh, if only I got uh, a certain set of toy soldiers for Christmas, oh, then I'd be happy. And if I didn't get them, then I was, I suffered. If I did get them, I was thrilled. I would play with them for a while, but I'd get bored. As I got older, I can remember thinking, oh, gee, if only I could get this girl, I'd be happy. Or if I called up and asked her for a date, she said, oh, I'm busy. Friday, so I have a next Friday. She said, I'm busy next Friday. And I said, have a next Friday. She said, I'm busy next Friday. I got the message. I wasn't very happy. In fact, uh, as an adolescent, sometimes I suffered quite a bit. And occasionally, sometimes I did get the girl. And again, I was thrilled. But, you know, the anima uh, image wears off and you start to see all their warts and uh, you start to argue and fight and jealousy and all that stuff arises. It's not that I was never thrilled or never excited or never uh, happy in the sense that we normally think of it. Oh, I'm happy today because something happened. You got something. But I was always restless. It was never enough. And if we want to call that thrill and excitement and so forth happiness, okay. But it was always then momentary happiness. It was never a deep contentment, a complete satisfaction. And as I grew older uh, and late in adolescence, uh, and I began to learn uh, more about the world, uh, all sorts of questions came up. Like, who am I and how do I relate to this world and what should I do with my life? And I had fairly rebellious adolescence. I, looking back on it, you say it was I grew up in the beatnik era. You could probably say I was a beatnik as a shorthand. And I guess I thought happiness could be wooed or seduced. That happiness was something uh, that you got by uh, being artistic. Uh, being uh, your own self, a nonconformist. It was fun for a while. It was interesting. I experimented a lot of things. Drugs and poetry and jazz and nightclubs and Jack Kerouac and whatnot. But always this restlessness, this restlessness. Deep, underneath, not necessarily always on the surface. The next phase of my life was being in the army and... Uh, being a soldier and coming back in the 60s and being a revolutionary. And I guess you could say in broad, a broad brushstroke is what I'm giving you here. I thought happiness is something you could conquer. Particularly as a revolutionary. I saw the world uh, differently now. As a beatnik, the... Uh, the uh, 
the problem of happiness was that there were all these straight people we used to call them around. That didn't, that didn't mean heterosexual in those days. It meant kind of squared. And they were Philistines. They didn't know anything about art. They didn't appreciate uh, uh, the finer things of life, which I did, of course, at 17, 18. <laughs> then as a revolutionary, the problem, I saw the problem of the world was that there were these capitalist, bourgeois, imperialist, and all their running dogs who own the world and own the world's resources and were making everybody else miserable by hoarding all these resources. And so the thing to do is to take it away from them and dispense it to everybody. Because I knew what was right. I was now 27, 28, so I had matured. Now uh, I knew this was... This was uh, obviously the cause of unhappiness. There was a lot of satisfaction in being a revolutionary. There's a sense of commitment to a group, a sense of belonging to uh, an organization and a community with a purpose, uh, a moral righteousness, which is very satisfying. Know your right, really know your right. And to do something about it is very satisfying especially when there's so few of you and everybody else is so wrong and you're so clear about that. And it was exciting being a revolutionary and being with Black Panthers and having the FBI knock at your door. And, you know, at least it was in those days. I'll pass on that today if I can avoid it. But eventually I found that was not uh, going to make me happy. And so then I suppose you could say the last, uh, the next phase of this was I figured out that I could buy happiness. If I couldn't conquer it, I could buy it. So then I realized that all these revolutionaries were idealists and uh, foolish and that the world was really a dog-eat-dog world and you had to look out for number one. And I learned a lot about capitalism as a Marxist, by the way. You learn all about capitalism. I learned more about capitalism than, any, than I was ever taught in a capitalist school. And uh, so I thought, well, now I know how the system works. Okay, good. I'll look out for number one. I'll get rich and uh, then I'll be happy. So I went to Hollywood, and I know something about film before, and I became a Hollywood filmmaker. And uh, pretty soon, within a few years, I was well on my way to buying it. I thought, and you, you can read about some of this in my book, and I'm not going to go into uh, great detail. But only to say that even though I did uh, achieve a certain amount of success as this culture defines it, I still wasn't really happy. And again, I had fun sometimes on the way. You know, it's great. The, uh, the first brand new car I bought, an Audi, right off the showroom floor was very thrilling to me. I'll tell you, I, this was a sign I was really making it. When I would, I once read a statistic, I think, that... Uh, uh, let's see, and this was before the uh, the Great Inflation. 
I was making, I don't know, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year. And of the Earth's population, that, that represented like three percent, only three percent or five percent of the Earth's population made over this amount of money. That was very satisfying. Imagine being in the top five percent of the Earth's population. But still, underneath, I wasn't really happy. Do you understand what I'm talking about, happy here? And I didn't always know that I was unhappy. But I did begin to notice, and this took 40 years, by the way, I did begin to notice that these uh, expectations I would have would never really quite pan out. And sometimes I'd work very hard to realize them. And they never really uh, turned out uh, just just the way I had expected, and uh, more importantly, it never lasted, even if it did. Not only because all the goodies were transient, but because my own enjoyment of them was transient. I think the one of the few things, uh, uh, times in my life where it really did, uh, an expectation really was fulfilled, and I was really, uh, I would say, happy most of the time in this period was when I went to Tahiti. I'd always read about Tahiti when I was a kid, and finally I could afford to ta go to Tahiti, and I went to Tahiti, and it was everything that I expected, more so. Have you ever seen a Gauguin painting of Tahiti? You ever wonder why Gauguin paints pink skies and stuff? He wasn't making it up. That's the way it is. It's fantastic. You get off the plane, and the air is like a drug. You can take one breath of that air and... But even then, I was with my wife at the time. Uh, first of all, we had a little, uh, you know, a couple of little, uh, arguments. Because the Tahitian women are, are very sexual and very frank about it. And they look men up and down and whistle at them and do all those things that women complain that men do in this country. But that wasn't so serious. But I also realized that if I stayed here, I was there, I think, uh, 10 days, something like that, seven days, that the magic would start to wear off, you know? When I left, I was glad to go because it would always be this, you know, this seven days of magic. I think it was Goethe who said, um, the great German uh, writer, who said that he could count the number of days that he had been happy in his life on one hand. Now, again, he doesn't mean that he always went around with a toothache, but I mean deeply, richly, seriously happy, contented, at ease, at peace. That's probably true of me up until that time. Now, from what I could tell about other people, my experience was similar to other people's to almost everybody that I met, in varying degrees. Particularly, I think this was illuminating when I was in Hollywood, to realize that these people had so much money, more money than I had by far, and more fame sometimes, and power and whatnot, weren't any happier than I was. In fact, often, they were more miserable. There's a, that old corny saying, money can't buy you happiness. Well, it is really true. It's not just a corny saying. 
in this culture, it's very hard for us to really believe that. We say that, but, uh, you know, we get offered a better job with twice the salary, even though it's in, I don't know, Houston, Texas, which I never particularly wanted to live in. Maybe I hope somebody is here from Houston, Texas. But we'll go, we'll take it for the money. Do you know what I mean? Maybe it's a job with more responsibility and more pressure and longer hours and less time for your family, but they're going to give you uh, a 20000 bonus, uh $20,000 bonus at the end of the year. So you take it. Because money seems, it seems, well, yeah, you know it's going to be tougher and you know it's going to be not as pleasant, but it's going to pay considerably more money. I know very few people have turned down really sizable chunks of money no matter what the circumstances. But in my experience, they really weren't happier. Not one of them that I knew would trade places and suddenly give it all up and go, you know, live as a monk or something. It's kind of a, like an addiction, you know. Once you're living at, uh, I don't know, You've been living at $10,000 a year, and then you, you're making $20,000 a year. It's hard to go back to $10,000. doesn't mean you're happier at $20,000. You're making $30,000. It's harder to go back and live on $20,000. This doesn't mean you're any happier. It just means you're more addicted. The heroin addict doesn't get a, a, a bigger kick out of twice as much heroin uh, a year later. It's just the same, the same kick, but you need more heroin. And like most people, I began to think, well, maybe this is just the way the world is. Maybe that, that idea, that image, that intuition that, that we have of, of happiness is a fantasy. It's like Santa Claus or something. Maybe the world is basically just a more or less rotten place that if we can eke out a little excitement, some fun, a little security for a little blink of time in, uh, that's good enough. That's all we can ever expect. That's all we can ever hope for. This is not what the great mystical traditions teach. Jesus, Buddha, Lao Tzu, Upanishads, Muhammad, the Sufis, they all say there is that happiness. Your intuition about it is not a lie. You seek happiness all the time. They say the problem is that you're seeking it in the wrong place. That truly speaking, that happiness is a reality. The peace that passes all understanding. Nirvana. The harmony of the Tao. Devakuth. I was lucky for a variety of circumstances that I stumbled on these teachings when I was 40 years old, after having explored all these uh, ways of becoming happy, and after being disappointed and disillusioned in them all. 
And I'm not going to go into detail about that because you can read that in my book, Naked to the Gate. That's why I wrote it, so I don't have to go explain it uh, over and over. The advantage of living in a literate culture rather than an oral culture. But I will tell you this, or several things about it. First of all, it requires faith, particularly in this culture. You have to ask yourself, was the Buddha, was Jesus, uh, was St. Teresa, uh, all these people, were they kooks, deluded, psychotics, just fools, stupid, or not? You have to decide that question for yourself. Nobody can convince you. That's a very important question to decide and to really try to decide it thoroughly. It would be better to decide that they're all fools and kooks and psychotics and go off and really try to become happy as a materialist. Really do it all the way. Than to sort of, uh, you know, keep that question sort of up in the air someplace. Not that it, you won't, doubts won't arise on the spiritual path. But it's an important question to decide. What am I doing here? Who am I, uh, what exemplar am I following? Rockefeller or the Buddha? I mean, there are two exemplars, two ways to go in life, or, or whatever else you might think it is. Che Guevara was a great exemplar of mine for a while. One of the things that convinced me was doing a lot of reading and realizing, first of all, not only that historically these people have had such astonishing influence on humanity and human history that if they were all kooks and psychotics, it basically means that humanity is kooks and psychotics because so many people responded to their teachings over the centuries. And two, when I did start to read uh, them and read from various traditions, I began to see they're all saying in different words the same thing. This was impressive to me as someone brought up in a scientific culture. This is the definition of objectivity. If one person goes out in the street and tells me there's a unicorn out there, I tend not to believe them. But if all of you in this room went out and said there's a unicorn out there, at least I would get up and take a look. The only, from a philosophical point of view, the only definition of objectivity left in this uh, culture is uh, when something is invariant to an observer. That means... One person comes along, sees it. Another person comes along, they see the same thing. Another person comes along, sees the same thing. Then we can start calling it objective. Abin Arabi, a great Sufi, wrote and sums up what we could say for all the mystics of all the traditions. Whoever has seen what I have seen will say what I have said, whether publicly or in secret. I found this to be true reading the mystical traditions. That intrigued me. I was also at the point where, for my life, I had tried all these things. Being a beatnik, being a revolutionary, being a Hollywood producer. I'd run out of ideas here. 
So the other element in here is faith and then courage. The willingness to gamble, to take a risk. And for me, it, it was very clear. Either the materialists were right or the mystics were right. If the materialists were right, life was meaningless anyway. And death was the end anyway. And so what difference did it make what I did with my life? If the mystics were right, at least there was a chance that the, something else could, was possible. So really, in a certain sense, I felt I had nothing to lose. I was tired. Really, I was tired and I was exhausted. And uh, I was just at a point in, in my career where uh, agents were saying they wanted to take me on. I remember one very distinct luncheon. And this agent came and uh, we were talking, he wanted to handle me. And uh, he said, uh, look around this business. Where, what do you want to do? Five years from now, you want to run a studio? And I thought, no, I don't. I don't want to spend the next five years of my life uh, going to cocktail parties and, uh, uh, you know, engaging in shallow uh, relationships and conversations and da-da-da and turning out a uh, product that I had no particular respect for. We even called it product. Just so I could run a studio. So what? So I'd make ten times what I was making then, but so what? But nevertheless, it still requires the sense of a gamble. At 40 years old, to begin a new adventure in life, and it is an adventure. I hope not all of you have to wait till you're 40. I take that as a sign of a certain thick skulledness. The, uh, a willingness to really take this leap into the unknown, because it is the unknown. That's why it's mysticism. And it involves uh, ways of seeing and doing and thinking and so forth that are quite different from what we call mundane ways of seeing and doing the social skills that you build up, the uh, economic job skills and all that, you know, they, uh, they have no place on a resume for the spiritual path. It doesn't impress the spiritual teacher, you know? I'm talking about your, your teacher, the teacher in your soul. And that's not impressive at all. So... In a certain sense, you're becoming a child again. You're starting over inwardly. It doesn't mean you have to dispense with all that outwardly. But in a certain sense, you have to be willing to become a complete student again. Now, you don't know anything. That's not easy to do. And then the hardest thing to do, perhaps, is to find out who you are. And this was uh, both, I found both very challenging and also somewhat scary. When I look back at my life at 40, 
and all these things I'd done, I realized I didn't actually know who or what I was. I had always imagined or thought I was some sort of entity, some sort of psychic entity, at least in, at times when I was uh, believing in materialism, just a material entity, living in this world of all these other objects and entities, thrashing about, coming to conflict with them, and that somehow I had emerged here 40 years before then, out of what, where, I knew nothing. And when I looked ahead down the road, somewhere along the way, I was going to vanish again into whatever this abyss was. But I really didn't know, when I stopped to think about it, to ponder it, who I was or what I was doing here or really what any of this was. I knew what people said here and there. I knew what Marx has said about it. I knew what... Uh, you know, capitalists said about it, materialists said about it. I knew what orthodox uh, uh, religions said about it. But I myself did not know. I knew what lots of other people said. But to find out, particularly who you are, and there are related questions, who you are and what all this is, to find out really means giving up all your preconceptions about yourself. Your self-images, you know. It means, up giving, it means giving up all those uh, images of yourself that you would like to be. Letting them all go and just observing. Start just wherever you can, wherever you find yourself. You just start observing what goes on here. What goes on in my mind? Never mind about what I say. That's important to observe as well. But we usually guard and censor what we say, much more so. What, does it, what do I really think? Weird and strange thoughts run through your head. What do I really feel? Weird and strange feelings arise. All my life... Previously, I had always had some image, we get this ever since we're children, it changed, of who I should be. At one time, I should be Jack Kerouac. I tried very hard to be Jack Kerouac. Later, I should be Che Guevara. I tried hard to be Che Guevara. By the time I got to Hollywood, who... Uh, when I started off in films, it was uh, Frederick Fellini. By the time I got to Hollywood, I realized that that was, uh, that was part of my romantic uh, adolescence. Steven Spielberg, I guess, maybe. was. And when we think we should be somebody, we censor our own experience. We don't notice or don't look at the thoughts and the feelings and the images and uh, anything that we do that doesn't fit that image. Psychologically, it's called repression. Sometimes it's not completely repressed, but uh, we don't acknowledge. To know yourself means to acknowledge those things. 
This is why in the Christian tradition, this is from a mystical point of view, this is the whole uh, bit behind being a, a repentant sinner. You're not perfect. You're a sinner. And to repent means to acknowledge. It's difficult to do. It's easier when you're younger. It's more difficult as you get older. You have to be quite desperate like I was. I had some good points. I don't want to run myself down too much. I like challenges all my life. And this was the ultimate challenge to me. This was like, go for broke. And that's another thing. On a spiritual path, at some point, you really have to make this commitment. You might go for years without fully making it, but at some point, if it's going to work, it has to be go for broke. At some point, it has to become the priority greater than death itself. I think it was Joseph Goldstein who was describing a meditation teacher he had in uh, Burma or India someplace. And he said, you, you couldn't come complain to this guy about aching legs and so forth because he thought if you died meditating, that was a noble death. That was a good way to go. But at some point you have to be willing. That doesn't mean you have to throw yourself uh, in front of a car. But if that's what it takes, then yes. Even death itself. This is what Jesus meant when he said, you have to sacrifice your life to find your true life, eternal life. It didn't mean you have to go put a bullet through your brain, but you, that commitment has to be that great. It has to be greater than your clinging to this physical life. That's what the Buddha said. The root of ignorance, the root of suffering, the root of samsara is the clinging to life, to existence. Now, if you stop to think about it, actually, it's not all that bad. It would be if we were all going to live physically forever, eternally. So if the choice was to take an ultimate gamble, to give up something ultimate, but you're not really giving up something ultimate. In point of fact, this physical life, whether you like it or not, is itself ephemeral and transient. So your desperate clinging to it is itself uh, unrealistic. So it's really a gamble, again, between something relative, this physical life, and something that at least is the possibility of being the absolute. And then everybody's spiritual path unfolds differently. And mine was, in some ways, quite unusual in the details of it. On the other hand, there are certain patterns in everybody's spiritual path, that tend to repeat from generation to generation, from seeker to seeker. So the details of your own life will be unique and so forth, but there are certain things you go through. Again, that's, I wrote about this in my book. I'm not going to go to great detail about it. But the point is, and the most important thing is to pursue it and pursue it at your pace. At whatever is right for you. You struggle with the doubts, and yes, there are times you uh, get lax in your discipline and so forth. But, 
as again Jesus said, if you knock, it shall be opened. You may have to knock a lot. You may only knock once. Ramana Maharshi knocked once and the door opened. My teacher, Franklin Merrill Wolf, knocked for 24 years and the door opened. Persistence. This was my experience of life up to the path. A, a life basically of seeking happiness and trying to avoid suffering. And 99% of the time not actually knowing what I was doing or, or operating under um, in worlds or in philosophical frameworks that were not of my uh, making or choosing. They were my choosing, not of my making. <coughs> wandering through, in a certain sense, these worlds. And they were quite different worlds. The world of a beatnik and the world of a Marxist and the world of a Hollywood producer are not the same worlds. And thinking various things at different times would make me happy. Always various things, always something out there. Women or power or money or security or a new car. Or more, more uh, noble things. Recognition as a filmmaker, an artistic creation or something. When I was very young, I wanted to be a writer. But always something in the future. Something to work for. Something to be produced. So that my idea was if I arrived somewhere, then I would be happy. Like if I could only get to the permanent Tahiti, then I would be happy. And what I found out was, in a ratty little motel room up on the Olympic Peninsula, on August 13th, 1983, somewhere in the middle of the night, waking up, was that this whole structure of a self and a world and a seeker and a sought, including a spiritual seeker and a spiritual end, was simply a work of imagination. It did not really exist. It never had. That doesn't mean that appearances don't exist. That things don't appear and fade away. This cat appears and it fades away. Yes. <laughs> but it's not a cat. Not truly. 
we can talk about it this way. How old is this cat? I don't know. It's probably about 12, 13, 14, maybe older. We think we're talking about something substantially there. But it's exactly the same as the way we talk about how old is Mickey Mouse. You know, Disneyland celebrates Mickey Mouse's birthday every year. I think he's something like 75 now. Do you know what I mean? They give a party. You could go to, the, to Mickey Mouse's birthday party. You can see Mickey Mouse on television and movie theaters. If you go to Disneyland, you'll see Mickey Mouse. We know in the case of Mickey Mouse, though, that we're only seeing appearances. We're never really seeing Mickey Mouse, and Mickey Mouse isn't really 75 years old or 100 years old or, or anything. It doesn't make sense to talk that way about Mickey Mouse, except as a game except as an imaginative construction. And then it's quite delightful if you're into Mickey Mouse. But we can understand that about Mickey Mouse, but we don't see that about ourselves. It's exactly the same. Enlightenment and uh, Gnosis is simply realizing this very obvious fact it's no wonder you've never been able to find happiness. It's no wonder you've never been able to find out what reality was. It's no wonder you've been able to figure things out. There's nothing to figure out. The more you figure out, the more you create. You don't get to the bottom of it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you know what you're doing. It's like creating Donald Duck to figure out what Mickey Mouse is. That's great. There's nothing wrong with Mickey Mouse. There's nothing wrong with Donald Duck and who are the other characters. As long as we understand what's really going on here. We need to use words to communicate at this point. Oh, at this point, there's really no word that will suffice. But the word that I chose to use as a, just as a marker here is that what I was was consciousness itself, not a conscious being. In this consciousness, there were lots of beings, including one I could point to and use the word I, if I want to use it in a relative sense, and I can point to this appearance here, and I can point to a, a certain uh, train of thought or feelings or whatever going on, and I can call that I. The way I could point to one wave on the surface of an ocean, give it a name. But I'm not that wave on the surface of the ocean, or I'm not exclusively that wave on the surface of the ocean. I'm no more exclusively that wave than all the rest of the waves. And I'm no more this being than that being. There is no uh, uh, permanent, individual, separate being in the world. There is only consciousness constantly informing and performing itself.
there's no reason to be afraid of death because there's no one to die. Not because I, some psychic soul, am going to live eternally in time, immortally. There was no one actually ever born here, even though we celebrate birthdays. The truth of the matter, this consciousness does all this, performs all this, because it's happy. Not because it wants to become happy. It cannot possibly ever become happy. It is already happy. It is already completely and perfectly happy. So no wonder all these 40 years I've been seeking for happiness, I could never find it. In, in a certain sense, it's the very seeking that creates the delusion of suffering. It's always moving away from exactly what you're looking for. Nothing, nothing in terms of the contents of this consciousness, in terms of the uh, appearances of the world, changes. Nothing needs to change. It's already perfect, including its changeableness. It's not a matter of uh, uh, seeing some archetypal vision or hearing the voice of God boom down at you. Say, Gene, this is the way it is. You've been looking a long time. You deserve to know. On the other hand, everything changes because that world that you lived in as a delusion, as a metaphor, as a, an as-if world, that as-ifness vanishes. It's as though you believed in Mickey Mouse. You grew up in, uh, I don't know, Borneo someplace, and you'd seen Mickey Mouse cartoons and this and that, and, and somebody from America told you they were going to take you to Mickey Mouse's birthday, and you got here, and Somebody at the, uh, when Mickey Mouse walks on stage and you're seeing Mickey Mouse and then, uh, the actor takes the head off and you see that it's a man dressed up. And then the actor puts the thing back on. What vanishes for that person isn't the party in the Disneyland and the actors and actors walk around in the costumes. What vanishes completely is the idea that Mickey Mouse is real. Forever. Do you see what I mean? In a certain sense, that person's been living in a deluded world in which there are real Mickey Mouses. And then that Mickey Mouse gets exposed. 
And so that world vanishes. And the world that is revealed is not that, oh, Mickey Mouse was just an actor. The opposite. It's, oh, the wind is the voice of God. So in a certain sense, yes, God talks to you. Oh, the pine tree is the form of God. So yes, in a certain sense, you do see God. Oh yes, the sun is God. And you feel it on your skin. It's it's not only a happiness that you always imagined, it's far grander than anything you can imagine. It's not that things get a little better. They may on a spiritual path, by the way, as you're going, things may get a little better. But enlightenment, gnosis, realization, is simply that when you stop seeking, you see that this unimaginable kingdom of God is, as Jesus said, spread upon the earth. It's just there. It is what was perfectly ordinary, and what in a certain sense still is perfectly ordinary. But now that what was ordinary is extraordinary. You don't need anything more extraordinary. It's not about miracles and powers and cities. There's no greater miracle than that uh, rose bush dancing in the wind out there. There's no greater miracle than all this stuff appearing. Look at it. It's, it's phenomenal, isn't it? I mean, you know, all you have to do is stop and stop thinking about it and see it. It's not a, a question of knowing in a conceptual sense specific things knowing in a conceptual sense is the constant construction of worlds and there's no problem with construction of worlds there was no problem with Walt Disney creating Mickey Mouse or any number of characters or worlds these characters lived in it's a question of knowing only one thing and that's everything what Mickey Mouse is and Donald Duck and everybody else. The Buddha is omniscient, not because the Buddha knows quantum mechanics. The Buddha is omniscient because the Buddha knows what this gong is. And in knowing what this gong is, knows every possible appearance in consciousness, knows what it truly is. Muhammad once was walking in a field in a, uh, a vineyard, and he was asking the vineyard keepers how they grew the grapes and pressed them and so forth. And the vineyard keepers were very astonished. And they said, Muhammad, you're asking us, but you're the prophet of God. And he laughed. He said, yes, but that doesn't mean anything about vineyards. It's not that kind of omniscience or knowledge that we're talking about. All of which is changeable. You know, today the world's divided up between uh, 
capitalists and proletarians, and tomorrow it's between uh, uh, what environmentalists and uh, reactionaries, or you know, it'll change. You look back in history, how people viewed the world. So, with such passion, the way they saw things divided up. Rome against Carthage. The burning issues of the day. I bet, I bet, uh, not half of you here know even where Carthage is or was. Who knows where Carthage was? Two people. Three. Burning issue of, the, of a century. Not to people who live around living. <laughs> <laughs> But there is a kind of knowledge that is not ephemeral, not conceptual knowledge. So this has been my experience in my life. And this is my one responsibility here, to bear witness to this. To simply say, this is what I did, and this is what I found. This is what I discovered. If anybody's interested in more detail of things that I did along the way, or how I made this discovery, or whatever, perhaps I can provide some guidance. If people are interested in creating a world, a sacred world, in which such a discovery, uh, the possibility of such a discovery is prominent, is a prominent feature of that world, as it was in all the great sacred traditions up until our, until our time, then perhaps we can work together on that. But beyond that, there's no magic. No miracle dust to pot people with. Just a testimony. The same testimony. Echoing down the ages. So that's the heart of it. That's really all that I offer here. And the rest is up to you. Are there any questions? I have a question. Sure. Um, in 1983, then, life became different for you. That's nine years. Um, having roles, stepping into and fulfilling a role, been tempting or important to you since that time? Your life up until that point had been, you know, good uh, child, obedient uh, uh, spouse, revolutionary beatnik, these things you've described. Since that time, 
maybe roles have a um, role to play in our lives. Maybe they don't. What's been your experience after this watershed experience? We're going to run into trouble here because the very uh, question, what has been your experience, already contains precisely the uh, error that constituted the kernel of my discovery. Your experience, as though there was somebody who has an experience. Mm-hmm. Having said that, though, I, on a practical level, I can answer your question on a relative level. Um, my role is is not a role I chose at all. Uh, somebody or people occasionally ask me, how come you're a teacher? It's very simple. People start asking me questions. And my teaching comes out of that implicitly or explicitly. Uh, my After my enlightenment, I wrote a book, and that was my testimony. And I said that was my responsibility. And uh, I was up at Lone Pine, and uh, which is a little tiny desert town in California, living in a little cabin. And a woman who was living in the area started coming and asking me questions. And I started answering them. And, and uh, that's how the teaching all began. And other people started asking questions. And uh, I met Maggie Goswami, asked me to come up here and do the center. Uh, so this is a role. I'm a, now a teacher. And I want to make very clear, I may not be a very good teacher. Being enlightened is being absolutely enlightened. But that uh, that's like, uh, there's no such thing as being a little bit pregnant. But it doesn't mean that you're necessarily a good teacher at all. In fact, I had such a short, formal spiritual path and was such a poor meditator and practitioner of precepts and other things that I continue to do those things meditate and so forth, so that I can learn them, because one of my uh, principles is not to teach what I don't know, personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a role that, again, in a, in a, speaking in the, these terms, I'm clearly conscious of as a role, it's not me. Do you see what I mean? If all of you decided, oh, this is, this is you know... Well, He's a charlatan, and there's nothing valuable here, and all you disappeared tomorrow. Then the role of teacher would disappear with you. But it wouldn't affect me in that sense. I'll tell you something else, and this is, again, speaking relatively. Uh, I run into quite a few people who want to be spiritual teachers and uh, who are slightly disappointed that people don't listen to them as spiritual teachers. And why anybody would want to be a spiritual teacher is beyond me, uh, frankly. Uh, it's not, a, a, it's, if anything, it's a sacrifice, if anything. In a certain sense, it's uh, uh, it's putting on a mask and playing this game with you all so that you can all realize that we're all putting on masks and playing the game. And You know what I mean? And in a certain sense, it's more effort than not doing it. There's a little Zen story that illustrates this. A, uh, a Zen master was trying to choose among his... Uh, 
senior disciples, one of them to go open a new monastery. So he set up a vase in the middle of the circle. They were all sitting around. And he said, without using words and without not using words, who can tell me what this vase is? So one of his more clever disciples said, well, you couldn't call it a tree. And they went around, and I guess several other disciples tried to answer this question. And the cook, who was in the, been in the kitchen, overheard this. He came out and he kicked it over. And so the master said, okay, you, you go. Uh, set up the new monastery. You beheaded the new monastery. And then there's a comment by another famous Zen master about the story, Mumon, Mumon's comment. And it runs something like, and so uh, the, the cook kicked all the obstacles out of the path that the master had set before him. Uh, but in doing so, the fool traded his position in the kitchen for the head of a monastery. <laughs> there's nothing to be, there's nothing envied, uh, there's nothing to envy in being a spiritual teacher. Let me just leave it at that. Why do you think uh, we as individuals and civilizations in general find it so hard to believe or accept what mystics have to say uh, or that mystics are believable at all? I don't know. Why do you find it so hard to believe? Ask yourself the question. That is a very good question. But you see, this is one of our problems. We ask it in the abstract about civilizations and individuals, other people. You ask it yourself. You'll find out a tremendous amount if you ask that question seriously about yourself. Why, why do you find it so hard to believe? Really examine that. In a certain sense, that's what I did. I found it almost impossible to believe. In fact, I did find it impossible to believe. A year before I went on a formal spiritual path, I would have said, a group like this, these people are fools. They're people who can't cope with life. And so they're off on some fantasy trip, and they're trying to escape from reality. Instead of being out there, making money, and becoming successful. You know what I mean? But I had to ask, I asked that question, you know? And I found no good reason, ultimately, not to believe the mystics. If you want another kind of answer, I think the uh, people are afraid. It's very radical. It's different from the uh, whole conditioning in which you uh, have come to accept. And in this conditioning, there is a self or a parent self, which is very important for you to hang on to. And it exists in a world. And to lose a self and to lose a world sounds terrifying. That's sort of a definition of insanity, do you know? This is what happens to crazy people. They, they lose this world and this self and they go off into some other thing. So, um, yes, it's been very important for individuals and cultures to hold on to their worlds. To the point of going to war and killing each other and burning each other at the stake, it's so important for them to hold on to their worlds, their delusions. It's a sign of fear. And, of course, you know, now that we're in the scientific age, and, and uh, now, of course, all our ancestors were jerks, and we finally 
discovered, you know, reality, just as I did when I was, you know, 17, and then I did again when I was 25, and then I did again when I was uh, 35. I mean, every culture thinks that its culture is the reality, and every other culture is, they're either morally corrupt, or they're infidels, or they're, you know, pre-theoretical, I think that's the, now the term we talk about, you know, traditional peoples, well, they were pre-theoretical, they're kind of like children, you know. Every culture has some explanation why other cultures don't see the world the way they do. And it's interesting that all these, but all these different worlds, that all these different cultures set up, they all come and go. Like Carthage, you know. Investigate it. The, the mystics doesn't come and go, because it's not actually a world. But the, uh, the motive, the concrete motive, is fear. Oh boy, we've gone longer than I thought. So let's uh, bring the formal part of the, uh, at least the talk here, to a close. And I think some people brought some goodies and get some goodies. And uh, if uh, any of you want to check out books from the library or whatever, now's a good time. And in about, oh, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour, we'll uh, get together and we'll give you our report, our center report for the year.